Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Tonight's show includes interviews from Wednesday, August the 24th, and Thursday, August the 25th, 2022, that will be aired during our Monday, August the 29th, 2022 show. From 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. Please join us at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 121st post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Tonight, we are delighted to have two experts on the first year anniversary of the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan, one an Afghan-American woman and the other an economic and geopolitical expert as they navigate us through an update and focus on the current status and welfare of women and Afghanis in general, as well as regards to the impact of the current U.S. sanctions imposed after the Taliban regained control of Afghanistan last August, 2021. That combined with the eight to nine billion dollars of frozen reserves from Afghanistan's central bank that the Biden administration and European leaders have illegally withheld from the Afghanis and without which Afghanistan faces a potential complete economic collapse is the focus of our show. We begin the show with a five minute excerpt from a show we did during our U.S. withdrawal back in August of 2021 on the status of women in Afghanistan and to dispel the notion that as a matter of foreign policy, we have ever had the interests of Afghan women as a primary concern. Enjoy. Yeah, this is excerpt from our August 16th, 2021 interview and dialogue with Matthew Ho, specific to the issues of women's rights in Afghanistan and the false propaganda that the United States has been fighting for women's rights in Afghanistan. In 2009, Matt Ho resigned in protest from his post in Afghanistan with the State Department over the American escalation of the war. Prior to that assignment in Afghanistan, Matt took part in the occupation of Iraq. He was a Marine Corps company commander, and when not deployed, he worked on Afghanistan in Iraq, war policy and operations issues at the Pentagon and State Department from 2002 to 2008. So in addition to being a State Department veteran, he has served our country as a combat war veteran as well. He currently is running for the Senate in North Carolina with the Green Party. But to your point about 2001, Taliban come to power throughout Afghanistan, 95, 96, 97. Uh, But in 2001, when the United States enters and the United States brings back into power all those warlords that the Taliban deposed, in their rise to, to power, these are the people that were the Mujahideen, those Islamist, jihadist, rebel leaders 
that were furiously religious, very adamant in their misogyny. And so these were the people who the U.S. brought back to power. So the idea that somehow the United States put into power in 2001 and for the last 20 years has kept in power men who are committed to women's rights is in a complete obscenity. You know, I mean, there's so much misunderstanding and so much gets reported and spoken of in the press, so much commentary that is just incorrect. The Taliban did not bring the burqa, the head-to-toe covering that women are forced to wear. Some women do choose to wear it, but I think probably most are forced to wear. If they had a choice, they probably wouldn't wear it, right? But the Taliban did not bring the burqa to Kabul. The warlords that the United States supported during the war against the Soviet Union and then who then put in power after the Taliban was deposed by the United States, they're the ones who brought the burqa to Kabul. They're also the ones who shelled and killed tens and tens of thousands of people in Kabul. But this idea that somehow these last 20 years has been an era of progress for women is just completely undone by any knowledge of what Afghan society is actually like. There have been pockets, there have been, if you go to certain neighborhoods in some cities in Afghanistan, women have much more rights, much more access to education, health care, the ability to travel, etc., than they did under the Taliban. But those areas are very limited, and it's confined to maybe the top two or three wealthiest echelons of Afghan society. The reality is for most Afghan women, although maybe the brutality and the oppression that they must live with is not as severe or medieval or theatrical as what they experience on the Taliban, they are still living in an oppressive society, a subjugative culture, and a misogynist government. To give you some examples, Pedro, 70 to 80% of Afghan women are forcibly married, and a majority of them are married as children. This occurs in government-controlled areas. In Afghanistan, 80% of suicides in Afghanistan are done by women, which if anyone knows anything about suicide statistics, that completely flips on its head how it is in the rest of the world. In the rest of the world, predominantly men commit suicide. Women commit suicide at a much lower rate than than men. But in Afghanistan, because conditions are so bad for women, again, in government-controlled areas, they are killing themselves, and they are doing it primarily by lighting themselves on fire. I mean, there's other things. The Afghan government, under Hamid Karzai, put into law the ability of men to rape their wives. It's legal if you're an Afghan man to rape your wife. The majority of women who are in prison in Afghanistan, again, under government-controlled prison, are there because of moral crimes. I mean, so, of course, we know, because you brought him up earlier, John Sopko, who is the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, who is one of the few honest persons in the last 20 years in the United States regarding these wars, and he has done a, an incredible job in terms of trying to shed some light on the, the, the lies and the crimes and the fraud and the waste and the corruption of these wars. But the notion that the United States is somehow supporting a progressive nation where women are living free and have the same rights as men and are not subject to brutality and a misogynistic culture, just not supported by the reality of the country. I know men and women who deploy with the U.S. military to Afghanistan, who in their nine months, 12 months, 13 months, however long they were in Afghanistan, never saw a woman. And those are in areas, again, that are controlled by the U.S. and by the Afghan government. So there just has not been, as you said, Pedro, it's a myth. 
What I'm trying to get back to, though, too, is the crocodile tears that we care about women in Afghanistan. That I was just watching TV today for an hour, flipped between CNN, MSNBC. In both of these panels, they were talking about how that on the basis of the U.S. military withdrawal from Afghanistan, all of these hard-fought victories for women of Afghanistan were now at risk. So that's for the American public. You know, we're lied to. We started the show off talking about how we've been lied to about Afghanistan and Iraq and all of that. Well, we're lied to about these issues of women's rights in Afghanistan in order to placate the American public into thinking, you know, we're doing all this good when, in fact, we've done all this bad. I want to just remind people, we're speaking with the distinguished journalist, Matthew Ho. He'd been writing a lot of articles over the years. He's written in periodicals such as the Atlantic Journal Constitution and Counterpunch and CNN and Defense News, The Guardian, and you know just a bunch of fairly mainstream as well as progressive websites. So that ends our August 16th, 2021 excerpt from our Bringing Light into Darkness show with Matt Ho on women in Afghanistan as a segue into our show tonight. Okay, welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are very blessed to have a very special guest I'll introduce here in just a moment. I just wanted to preface this introduction by indicating today is Wednesday, August the 24th, 2022, and this show will be actually broadcast on the August the 29th, 2022. This is just coming Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. We are very blessed to have Masuda Sultan. Uh, she is an Afghan-American women rights activist and entrepreneur has been working for over two decades in support of women's and girls' education and vocational training and protection from violence. And in fact, Ms. Sultan was, was appointed as an advisor to the Ministry of Finance in Afghanistan in 2008. She also wrote a very important book, I thought. I have not read the book. I've read some reviews of the book, and I look forward to looking at it. But it's basically... She lived the experience of being an Afghan woman and some of the very conservative cultural issues around that. And she wrote a book, My War at Home. It was published in early 2006. Also, she has an MPA from Harvard University. So first of all, welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. And thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Pedro. Listen, I wanted you to speak to the, the issues today as an Afghan-American that has a, a unique experience with feet in both cultures. But back in April 78, a secular government came to power and it introduced a lot of progressive reforms. Land reform opened the doors for women's issues. At some point, some 40% of the doctors were, were Afghan women and 70% of the teachers were Afghan women. That period is long gone. There's been a lot of pushing and promoting different groups and that type of thing. And of course, I think a fair study of that history shows that the United States pushed in the direction that has resulted in governments coming to power that have been very oppressive towards women's rights and other rights and such. A year ago, the United States, after 20-year war, got out of Afghanistan. And right now, there's a terrible economic conditions and there's a freezing of funds and those types of things. But from a perspective, an Afghan scholar and Afghan-American expert, 
Can you fill us in a little bit about what you feel are the most important things for the U.S. public to know about the conditions in Afghan today? And particularly, I was enamored by your own experience of being an Afghan American woman that actually was compelled into uh, uh, not making free choices as as to marriage choices and those types of things. Are you comfortable talking about those issues for Afghan women in 21st century? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, I wrote, I write about it. I've written about it, and I talk about it. You know, I come from a conservative culture. I come from a family who has had arranged marriages for, you know, my parents' marriage and everyone before that was arranged. But I was born in Afghanistan. I came to the U.S. as a child, so I grew up in New York City, and it's a very different world. And actually, it's a very different world in parts of Afghanistan as well. You know, in in Kabul, which is an interesting city because it is it it, it ha- Afghanistan has opened up quite a bit over the last twenty years with you know television and education and uh, internet. And I'm not saying that all of it was good over the past twenty years, but there has been an incredible opening up of the country if you compare it to what it was in 2001. And arranged marriages, while still the most you know are mostly prevalent in Afghanistan. In fact, forced marriages are quite a high percentage still, and we can get into the factors of that, a lot of which are socioeconomic. But there are young people in Afghanistan choosing their partners. They are in the minority, but it's happening. And uh, I believe a lot of this to me is we say it's culture. It is culture, but culture changes over time and societies change over time. And when women have access to education and access to employment and opportunities, that also changes their lives. And so I think right now what's happening in Afghanistan, kind of getting out of the marriage question and going up 30,000 feet for a second and saying, what's the current state of the country and how does it affect these marriages? Well, things are are not good. Things are very bad in Afghanistan. They just had their worst year on record. People are starving. There's mass starvation. It's near famine conditions. And although a famine was averted last winter due to donations to the WFP, primarily by the US and other countries, the US has also frozen Afghanistan's assets and the economy is crippled. Excuse me, the World Food Program, is that the WFP? Yes. Okay. Yes, sorry. Yeah, sorry. yeah. And, you know, there's been a big appeal. The UN made an appeal. It was the largest one country appeal ever made for $4.4 billion to assist Afghanistan. And only half of that was funded. This was a year ago. Now it's expected this year that donations will be down to the World Food Program. Uh, people, you know, they don't want to fund humanitarian aid forever for a country that to probably to outsiders can't seem to get its act together. But really, we have to look at some of the drivers of the socioeconomic crisis. And we have to look at what happened to Afghanistan over all these years and where the investments were made and what the war has done and what the pullout has done. Now, I was in favor of ending the war and supported President Biden's decision to pull out of Afghanistan. But, you know, 75% of the budget of the country came from external donors. And when you pull that out overnight and when you freeze their central bank reserves, that is a decline faster than the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. in a country that's already one of the poorest countries on earth. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not good for anyone. And that's especially not good for women. Mm-hmm. We talk about child marriages, you talk about forced marriages, people are selling their children, people are very, very desperate. And this year, they're going into a winter that, you know, they have less than they did last year. And the international donor community is tired of putting money into Afghanistan, but it's not being smart about it. 
You know, we haven't really been smart about our policies in Afghanistan, 20 years of investments, uh, and we're still one of the poorest countries on earth and probably the worst humanitarian disaster on earth. Yeah, I think those are excellent points. The humanitarian disaster, of course, is the most pressing issue. Also, it just seems to me by watching what we've done, not just in Afghanistan, but in other parts of the world, we spent like, according to the very credible Brown University Costs of War Project, the U.S. cost to date for the war in Afghanistan from fiscal year 2001 through fiscal year 2022 is some $2.3 trillion. And that includes operations in both Afghanistan and Pakistan. But the total does not include funds that the United States government is obligated to spend on lifetime care for American veterans of this war, nor does it include future interest payments on money borrowed to fund the war. So this is a huge economic and investment in which audits have suggested much of it is unaccounted for. Well, and there was just kleptocratic types of administrations that were there and that type of thing. But can you speak a little bit about the situation the Secretary General of the UN recently indicated that some 95% of the people do not have enough to eat? And you're, you're mentioning the risk of this winter famine. The issues with the Taliban, it was interesting to me that, you know, the Birkin stuff really wasn't introduced by them. My understanding is that it was introduced by the more conservative or the conservative Mujahideen elements that we were in bed with for a long, long time as well and such. Not to say that the Taliban is a progressive group at all, but it does seem like there is, from my reading, different sectors within the Taliban when it comes to things like women going back to school and those types of things. Can you indicate your perception of the Taliban moving forward in light of this, these sanctions and everything else and the freezing of these monies with this winter rapidly coming upon us. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about Taliban and the potential that there could be any real progressive advancements in the current type of environment? Yeah, I want to say about the burqa real quick that uh, the burqa has been around a really long time in Afghanistan. It didn't start with the Taliban. It didn't start with the Mujahideen. It's been around before that. My mother wore a burqa. My grandmother wore a burqa. Probably my great-grandmother wore a burqa. So that that's something that's been been there for a really long time. Regarding the sanctions and the freezing of the money, I think by now we all know that sanctions really hurt the most vulnerable of society. I was in Afghanistan in March. I met with women and families who were boiling leeks as their one meal, who were occasionally getting bread, a stale piece of bread, who weren't even getting to the food distribution sites in Kabul, which is the capital, which is where most of the aid is usually, you know, historically concentrated. You know, the rural areas, in some ways, you know, the rural areas are better off because the, particularly in the battlefield rural areas, particularly in the south and the east of the country, where they were under constant attacks, they're doing better in that way, because they don't have the war anymore. But the aid never really got to them. So when it comes to hunger and access to health, um, that's still a major, major problem. Regarding the Taliban, well, it's a complicated thing because they're not a monolith, right? There are different attitudes and different views within the within the movement. Whereas in the 90s, they essentially banned girls' education. Now, one of the biggest changes we see is that Aside from girls' secondary public schools, girls are going to school. Now, people don't like talking about this because the Taliban are bad and they're supposed to be, you know, they're supposed to be evil. But actually, no one could have imagined in Afghanistan with the Taliban in control and girls going to school. Now, 
we want all girls to go to school. We want secondary schools, public schools to be open as well. And we're working on that. I was, as I mentioned, in Afghanistan this past March, along with a delegation of um, seven other American women peacemakers. It was the first civil society delegation from the U.S. to go after the collapse of the government and the withdrawal of U.S. troops. And we met with the Ministry of Education and we advocated for the reopening of girls' secondary schools. And to our surprise, really, the people in the Ministry of Education were also for opening those schools. In fact, not one of the Taliban members that we met during our trip from landing at the airport all the way through the week that we were there was against opening girls' secondary schools. They were very disturbed and disappointed by the decision of the emir. Now, you know that this organization is the Taliban movement is very much abides by very strict rules of decision making, and the emir has the final say. And they were encouraging in the sense of saying that they believed that the decision would be corrected, that it was just a delay. But of course, now it's been so long, and it's disappointing. But you know, this is one change that we see in them which is a positive change. Now, I'm not saying that things are great. There's been a you know rollback of women's rights. Women have to, for example, when they're traveling more than 70 kilometers, have to have a male relative with them. There's all sorts of edicts and things that come out, particularly from the Ministry of Vice and Virtue from time to time, but enforcement seems to be not a pattern. So the question now is, how do we engage with these people and how do we do so in a way that encourages more moderate views and allows an, an, an ability to engage with the world rather than isolating them and having them, you know, become a pariah state and potentially a failed state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it seems like that was what I was picking up on a little bit is, is that there are different elements. It's like you said, not a monolithic group. I just want to remind folks, we have the great pleasure in honor of meeting with Masuda Sultan, and she's an Afghan-American women's rights activist, very fluent in the Afghan culture today and yesterday and the current issues that are going on. You've been working quite a bit for the rights of, of Afghans, and, and I guess the issues of the recovery from the war itself and the actual freezing of these funds that Joe Biden is promoting and the fact that the impact on their ability to govern with so many restrictions on the the substantial amount of monies and such. Can you just share in the last few minutes that we do have with you, what do you see are the forces for and against the advancement of rights? I guess having a peaceful existence without war for the first time, to my knowledge, there has not been outbreaks of military violence in the last year or so. But overall, what do you see in the in the coming year? And also, I know you're very focused on the immediate needs, and rightfully so, because of the threat of famine and those types of things. There was a Gallup poll that indicated that there was an enormous number or percentage of Afghans that felt that they were suffering. And I guess to finish up our, our visit, if you could just share that disposition and what the prognosis is for improving those conditions, what needs to happen in your eyes? Yeah, well, uh, number one, I mean, there has to be aid given. This country was built on an aid economy for 20 years. We supported that country through aid. Yes, there was military aid that's no longer needed, but the entire education sector, health sector, you know, development projects were funded by external aid, mostly by the US. So we can't walk away and just shut off the lights overnight. And that's one of the reasons they're struggling. So we need to increase our aid. And even though we're giving aid right now, it's just not nearly anything what we're like what we were giving before. Uh, so that's one immediate emergency 
requirement. <clears throat> the second is because banking is crippled, there's as the reserves are frozen, what's happened is the, the central bank response to that and a, res, a result of cash outflows, capital outflows, and a lack of physical cash, um, both dollars and Afghani, and we can get into why that is, but these multiple issues led the central bank to limit the cash withdrawals from the banks. Initially, it was $200 per week, then it was increased to $400 per week. And um, we all saw long lines outside of the banks. People had to wait two, three days to get their allotted withdrawal amounts. It's still very difficult for the banks to operate. Many of them are, are shutting down branches, have fired employees. The banks are all crying, saying that, you know, we're all we're going to go out of business if nothing is done soon. And this was a banking sector, again, that we as the U.S. built up. We said to people, hey, we're modernizing this country. Take your money out from under the mattress, bring it to the banks. And, and now people are stuck holding the bag. I mean, you know, just regular people who had their savings in the bank are unable to access their money, except for these small withdrawals. So we need to inject liquidity back into the banking system and carefully unfreeze that money and allow them to do the currency auctions that they used to do to support the Afghani. Uh, the currency uh, is another issue. There's been inflation. There's Wheat prices are also up, but they were up in Afghanistan before they were up worldwide. Mm -hmm. So it's about 50% increase mm -hmm. um, last year for, for wheat. Uh, similar increases with oil and you know basic food goods. Uh, excuse me, Masuda, but we need to take a quick pause for the cause here at 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, and we are blessed to have Masuda Sultan as our guest, and we will rejoin Masuda right after this brief pause. Don't touch that dial. 